You're listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association, where we discuss the latest market trends in outdoor recreation. And now, here are your hosts, Kelly Davis and Patrick Hogan. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Outdoors. I'm your host, Patrick Hogan. In this episode, Kelly and I are joined by Casey Taylor from Civic Science to discuss his unique approach to quantitative research. How does civic science mitigate response bias? How have estimations of American well-being recently changed? And what does this depend on? And how many soup dumpling lovers also participate in outdoor recreation activities? Let's get into it. Casey, where are you calling from? Uh, I'm in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, cool. I'm in the Denver area. The People for Bikes office is in Boulder, about an hour away. Cool. Um, Cool. Yeah, been, been here for a while. Love it. Are are you in person or are you remote? Are you hybrid? Uh, we're remote. We still have our office space, um, yeah. but honestly, I nobody goes. I I went in a couple times feeling bad, like ah, oh, maybe I should make a few appearances, and every time I did, it would just be me. So I realized, yeah, that was not the yeah. So. You know what we did to combat that is we said if you're going to come in, let's come in on Thursday, so you don't have that sort of like. Well, what the hell? I, I drove this whole way and it's like me and the front desk person. Yeah, that's um, we we are not that organized as a company. <laughs> well, the, the thing that really made it work is that people for bikes will buy us lunch on Thursday. So like, look, oh, sick. Well, yeah. once a week, we'll buy you lunch. You hang out. Yeah, you, you're, you're then yeah, you're then you're then you're a goofball for not going. You have to, you know, that's it's free it, lunch. Yeah. Who the they, hell they says no to you a free on, lunch? They email us on Wednesdays. That uh, this week they were buying dumplings from the dumpling shop for lunch. They're like, you you want dumplings? Well, dog on it. Yes, I do. I'm going to come in on Thursday. Hell yeah! You do that, yeah, if you do that Monday through Friday, I'm back to 40 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> soup dumplings will get me anywhere. <laughs> exactly. You know, I just bought a soup dumpling kit, and I had I got 50 soup dumplings with it, and I went through yeah. it in about three days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dude, they're the best. They're the, like, right? the best food ever invented. It's got everything Love going it. for it. It's perfect. I got some, the yeah. chili crisp, like a, a chili crisp sauce. That's the only texture missing. You need the chili crisp for the crunch because then you get the crunch. Oh, God. Yeah. Oof. we're on, I'm going to have to leave this meeting and go eat. Sorry, man. <laughs> yeah. I got to go. I got to go to the H-Mart and pick up some more dumplings. <laughs> I'm, us, <laughs> I'm using. I'm using. I love soup dumplings. I have the bamboo. I got that bamboo steamer. I got cute little. Oh. Cust- yes. And I got cute little you custom bowls. I did. Yeah. And the bowls have like a space for the dumplings and a little a little reservoir for the sauce. If if I had That's one complaint, amazing. I want two reservoirs for sauce so I can have two different kinds of sauces. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You had a, you had a soy and then you got your like your vinegar or your chili or. Uh, dude, I'm going with um, chili chili crisp. We all love chili crisp, and then I've got a, a fly by zing. I can't remember what kind of sauce it is, but it's sweeter. It's like a sweet chili crisp. And then I've got a scallion oil sauce. That's amazing. <laughs> that's savory. So that's the, the umami in that off the charts, man, off the charts. Let's just spend the whole podcast talking about soup dumplings. <laughs> Not that we record this right around lunch or anything. Yeah. Man. Well, you know, if I could think of one group that could tell us the crossover between soup dumpling enthusiasts and outdoor rec participants, it might be civic science. I think it is civic science. Let's let's go ahead and introduce our guest for today. Our guest today is Casey Taylor, who works for civic science. And I met him 
when I was negotiating a contract with civic science for the outdoor industry association. And we do provide our members with access to civic science. And also we provide something called the research roundup where we hunt and fish for great hunt and fish stories in civic science and provide those to our member base um, as a high level of, of consumer intelligence. But let me just let Casey tell you about what he does at Civic Science and what Civic Science is all about. Casey, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a, that was a very nice introduction. Nice to meet Patrick. <laughs> nice to be here with Kelly. I've known Kelly. Uh, formalities aside. Yeah, so I've been at Civic Science now for like seven years, uh, which is really crazy because we're, we're a startup over in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Technically speaking, we've now like turned the corner where we're like too big to call ourselves a startup, but I was there when we still only had like 15 people. So I still kind of think of it that way. And we're weird. We break stuff. We are very agile. We have just a completely different approach to research than anyone else in the industry because of the tool that we built. Like the the whole startup came from uh, this technology we developed, which was a massive database that could house just like billions upon billions of individual quant inputs and then compare them all with each other. It's all stuff that's like way beyond me because I'm not the programmer guy. I'm the I'm the research guy. But what it is is essentially a network of questions that we deploy across a lot of popular websites. Let's say, I think when I started here, it was like a few hundred. Now we're up in the thousands. Um, many billions of page views every month. And all we do is short opt-in intercepts, right? We have this stuff running. It'll be in article or it'll be in the right rail on like MSN or Slate or something like that. If you're reading like a, a politics uh, long read on salon.com, you might see something about like a Biden infrastructure plan or the debt ceiling negotiation, you know, who won that, who cares, right? But like they'll, they'll ask you who won and then you'll answer that. And the next thing you get will be like research. Hey, how often do you go snowboarding? How often do you eat at McDonald's? That kind of stuff. Um, so it's like short and punchy for the respondent. But what's cool and different about us is we don't pay anybody and we don't keep their personal info. We don't get their email. We don't get their phone. We keep it all anonymous. And by doing so, we found that like our data kind of comes out like a little bit realer, so to speak, in terms of matching up to like market penetration numbers, stuff like that. It just, it creates a whole new model of not just from the respondent side, like who's answering questions and what kind of people you're talking to, but also like we get 4 million responses a day and we get that whether someone pays us to or not. So we're always using it to just do extra research, find out extra stuff, react to the latest news, you know, like we're running pieces about everything that's happening with the NBA finals already and like gambling intent going into it since that's all anyone sees on TV now and they turn on ESPN and stuff, you know, but like it's it's like having the biggest syndicated data set in the world, like Nielsen or Simmons or something, but if they fielded it every day and that's where what our company's like. And it's it's really fun to work there because you know, I have ADHD, which means that every day I want to learn something new and uh, it drives my family nuts, but my employer loves it, you know, so it's it's good. I was going to say, I love what you said about this being basically the biggest syndicated data set refreshed every day. That is mind blowing to me. That just blew my mind a little bit, Casey. I was just thinking about, I mean, and it is, I, I have, you know, I have full access, which is amazing. I can go in and ask any question I want mm -hmm. and um 
some of the some of the outcomes have been very surprising. But for instance, I mean, we we did a custom question with you guys so that and I did it, I organized it so I could parse data a little bit better according to outdoor. So it's major which of these major activities that do you participate in? And then included a couple that were non-physical activity just to compare. Mm-hmm. Um and we've already got what we we've been fielding for three weeks. I've got something like 35,000 responses to that. Yep. And w- so I can, oh, wow. right. So I was cross tabbing it with things like consumer spending. So I could see what the difference was between hikers and, and bikers and then everybody else in the whole world that doesn't do those things. It was fascinating stuff. Cause I did start to see a pattern of variance that showed me how outdoor participants tend to be a little bit different than everybody else. And now, I mean, thinking about the largest syndicated database refreshed every day. I mean, now I'm drunk with power. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that's that is honestly what I find so fun about it is like um, the uh, another way we've come to think of it is like the power of a survey without a screener. You know, because in the research industry, people that work in it know this, but like you know, when you get a panel survey done. You know, you ask for N equals 500 and you get your N equals 500, but they asked 7,000 people and they threw out all those people that didn't match. And what we do is we just collect everything. We have an opt out for every question. So if something doesn't apply to someone, they can always opt out. But that means because of our scale, even like low incidence stuff, like, you know, early days of Amazon Alexa when market penetration was under 5%, you know, we could go out and within a couple of days, I mean, 5% of 500 is not a usable segment, but 5% mm-hmm. of 25,000 is, right? So like go out and get that many people and then start to cut folks like cohorts of folks by variables that people just aren't used to actually being able to see with a reliable statistical measure. Things that like you would typically think of as like, well, hopefully I can get 80 people in a focus group you know, or in a series of focus groups so I can hear from them. We have the ability to then kind of go out and be like, well, no, I'll just show you what 20,000 mountain bikers think, you know, like it's just a much different level of power there. Yeah, it's 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 quite powerful. And that doesn't mean that, you know, for everybody, it's the be all end all. We have plenty of data to triangulate it with. But this is data that allows you to crawl inside consumers heads. Um, and when you say there's, you know, it's like serving something without a moderator, which is really valuable because we've talked about bias before. Right. I've shared I've shared my my personal um, um, bias worksheet that I fill out. And I'm thinking about response bias, where you've got a lot of people telling you what you think you want, what they think you want to hear. Mm -hmm. So that actually probably reduces bias in addition to making your margin of error um, virtually, you know, zero point one or zero, 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 zero point. Well, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, like honestly, one of the things I have found that's helpful even for customer service from the scale is just knowing that like when you see something on the screen, you don't have to get the TI-83 out and find out whether you're looking at a valid statistic. You know? <laughs> God, I, get, I swear oh, I could geek out with you all day. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to mention one of my favorite calculators. Also, there's the Casio, the Casio. Of course, of course. But I'm. I'm I'm an elder millennial, so I'm a TI-83 yes, guy, yes. you know. But growing up in Texas, uh, in Dallas, uh, that's where Texas Instruments is based. That's where my father, in addition to the parents of a lot of my friends, work. So, yeah, I'm partial with the TI-83. I like that. Yeah, that you guys have that. 
you had the freshest ones off the line. It's like getting cream cheese in Philadelphia. You know, that's you it. It's a good point. It's a good point. My, I remember when I was a kid, I don't want to date myself too much. I'm gonna, but when I was a kid, my parents spent a hundred bucks and it's like 19, probably 1972 to buy the first Texas instrument calculator that you could buy just as a consumer. And it was just basically, we could get, basically get it for free now. Right. I mean, it added it, divided, it didn't do it. It was not scientific. You couldn't even do a square root on this thing, but they were, they wanted to buy it because they wanted to be the first ones to get that Texas instrument calculator. It's it's like the step up from arithmetic, you know, it's like the advancement (laughs) of the evolution of the calculator. And now we have calculators that have video on it. We can do podcasts on them. Isn't that wonderful? It's pretty awesome. I mean, my my first step into that was called the little professor. And it was basically a little handheld thing that yeah. that that forced you to do math problems, you know, and and tried to convince you that it was fun. And I, you know, I loved that little toy. I did. And now I'm a mathematician. So yeah. <laughs> Thanks, but mom and dad. Drive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was all related to that first Texas instrument calculator, too. All of I was going to say, this is kind of like a funny, this podcast has turned Freudian. We're like, oh yeah, this is where everything started for you. Huh? Okay, great. <laughs> Very nice. It was my mother. Also yeah. my father. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and by the way, since we're geeking out totally, I love when you mention N, um, I'm a big, I'm a big follower of um, understanding my universe. And that is, that is the big deal about civic science. I mean, now my N is 30,000 when I used to struggle to get 500. So, you know, I can, I can, I can also filter the data. I can do canonical filtering, which is amazing. I mean, nobody else does that. And I don't want to geek out too much on why that's really great because it provides you with some probability um, actually Mm -hmm. integrated into the the formula and helps you get a better view and a better representative sample that you're looking for. I think helps you hone that. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to tell you that, you know, for for years I've been handing out N equals one t-shirts to people that didn't understand what N equal one means (laughs) because they said after you present data and then they say, well, yeah, but my cousin, Um, I'm going to send you one for, for one of the very first times just for understanding it and being that cool. So welcome to the N equals one club, Casey. <laughs> I, I'm I'm honored to be one of the few people that would wear that shirt in public without being embarrassed, uh-huh. honestly. I would do that. <laughs> would. Yeah, I'm thinking about adding something to the front that says only my opinion matters. And just yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's too funny. Um, well, so can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to get inside consumers' minds with your data? And maybe, you know, you talk about, maybe you, I'm sure you have a story to tell. We have a lot of fun stories, like some that go back many years, some from fairly recent that are always good examples of this. But I mean, the the get inside consumer mind thing, I think one of the things, Kelly, you mentioned about how surveys typically work, like a response bias that gets baked in, is that idea of like what people expect the survey provider to want to hear. Um, And the reason that occurs, there's a lot of reasons that occur that are psychological, but one of the reasons is the structure of the survey itself is it progresses, right? You answer one question, it leads you to another. You, over time, you've taken enough tests in your life, you start to realize like, oh, this is what this survey is really about. And maybe you start answering a little bit differently. Our system Respondents answer individual discrete poll questions. So there's no logical progression. To the respondent, it actually feels like a very randomized experience. On the back end, there's a heavily controlled algorithm about which you know, questions go and get served. And 
that's for like sample balance purposes, regional purposes, lots of different reasons, right? Um, but essentially what is happening is the respondent is just answering three or four questions at a time that have nothing to do with one another. Here's a question that asks you your gender, age, and your income. Here's a question about McDonald's. And now here's a question about pharmacies. You know, So within that, the respondent is, I don't want to say it's like caught off guard because it's not like a shocking interaction, but it's also like there's no rhythm developing where they're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to say. And over time, the way our system works, our average respondent, I think the last numbers I saw only answers between like 15 and 18 questions with us. But because we have now over 100 million respondent profiles, right, and millions of people answering every day, what our algorithm is doing is serving up every combinatorial possibility of questions many, many times over so that all of those questions, one through 2,000, can be cross-tabbed with one another. So what's happening is like you get the output almost as if you were asking someone, does mountain biking make you happier? But that would be a perception question. That would suck with all due respect to those who ask us. Because like, yeah, I love mountain biking and it makes me happier. But is that true or is that just what you think? Instead, we're able to say, here's a question about mountain biking frequency over here. And now here's a question about whether or not someone says they have experienced more or less happiness in the past week than average. And whether these folks know it or not, I can now look and see and compare these things and say, okay, amongst those people that mountain bike every day, yeah, you actually do see they have a higher proportion of people reporting they're very happy within the past week compared to those that don't go outside at all, right? So if you ask someone, you're getting what they think. If you ask someone about two disparate topics, compare them together, you have a Bayesian inference, right? That's actually like very directly related instead of it being more of a, hey, what do you think you do? It's like, no, here is a statistically significant finding that shows you amongst 20,000 people that mountain bike, we have a higher level of happiness. So now you don't have to ask them, you know, they, you already know. Are you a psychic, Casey? Yes. Have you yeah, like found yourself to be an empath? Because on the screen that that you cannot see right now, I have brought up uh, um, a chart that I just made yesterday um, called Happiness and Outdoor Recreation. Yeah. And it's exactly the data that you're talking about. And I've got my N. Oh, I love my N on this. Hold on. I got to move my chart. My N is 38,939. Like oh, that. that makes me so happy inside. We that's like a that's an number. That's an N. And what it shows is um, overall um, outdoor participants in walk, hike, bike um, and camping tend to be happier than those who don't participate. So, for instance, those who read, use technology or don't do anything at all um, on a, st a statistically significant level say that they're more likely to feel so, so unhappy or very unhappy than anyone who is participating in outdoor recreation. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. That, I mean, I'm it, that there's, <laughs> there's a whole marketing campaign wrapped up in that. And I didn't mm -hmm. just, I mean, I didn't, I, I saw that and I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I ended up going down about 10 million different rabbit holes, but I ended up looking after that at health to see if in fact, you know, a hypothesis that people that participate in outdoor recreation at least perceive themselves to feel better. So this is more of a question about um, 
how many, this is actually a question about how many times you've visited a health professional in the last year. And it does turn out for overall that, that um, non-participants are actually more frequent visitors to mm-hmm. healthcare providers and also are more frequently not going to healthcare providers at all. So they're either going a ton or not at all. Very interesting. So I mean, you can just, and the fun thing about analyzing this data is that you can see, just keep drilling and drilling and drilling. So if I'm interested in outdoor and I'm defining that as say hike, walk, hike, bike, fish, camp, um, I can drill down into each of those. Mm-hmm. I can compare it with almost any, I can compare it with coffee drinkers if I wanted to. It's freaking awesome. It's allowing me to get this view of of what's going on in my customers' heads that I I just can't seem to find anywhere else. Yeah, it's a fun. I mean, it's one of those things for like the old uh, cliche, the correlation causation thing, right? Correlation doesn't equal causation. It's like I always like to think about our platform that way, which is like, well, yes, but correlations usually at least are interesting, right? Correlations to me generate hypotheses, even if it's not necessarily like a causation, it shows you something where you go like, all right, so now like this is not just a theory or a gut feeling. This is rooted in truth. Even if it is a chicken egg situation, you at least then get to start to figure that out. Once you figure out where the chicken egg thing is happening, you can start to explore around the margins, I think, which is always fun. I'm with you. I mean, the null hypothesis is you know, so the null hypothesis is this basically H1 considering H2 equals nothing, right? It's null. The idea that nothing you're, you're going into your analysis thinking nothing's going to have an impact on, mm-hmm. on, you know, your, your dependent variable. And it, so the fun thing about civic science is I can keep throwing stuff in the hopper. Like maybe I wonder if this is having an impact. I wonder if this is having an impact. I wonder if this is having an impact. And I can even cross tab through that so I can actually. I can collect enough data to do regression if I wanted to. I could do the regression there, but it, it'll having that much data allows you to do things like that in your analysis that um, normally you wouldn't do. And you know, if 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 you're interested in correlations, just keep adding stuff. Just figure it out. Just look at your p values every time you add something and see what happens. Hey, y'all! I think we're about to spill over into another episode. So why don't we take a break here and we'll pick it back up next week. Thanks for listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association. We'll see you next time.